It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good evening and welcome to Election Night 4. With control of the U.S. Senate in the balance, Democrats got some good news a short time ago. The state of Nevada released about 26,000 more ballots before we came on air tonight. Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is now less than 1,000 votes behind her Republican challenger, Adam Laxalt. And we're expecting even more ballots later tonight from a part of Nevada that has so far been full of good news for Catherine Cortez Masto. But at this moment, that race is still too close to call. In the last few minutes, NBC News has projected a result in Nevada's race for governor. Incumbent Democrat Steve Sisolak has lost his re-election bid to Republican Joe Lombardo. And a few minutes ago, Governor Sisolak conceded that race. And over in Arizona's Senate race, which is still too early to call, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is ahead of his Republican challenger, Blake Masters, by about 115,000 votes. But there is still quite a bit of vote outstanding there. We're expecting election officials in Maricopa County to release a big bunch of votes later this evening, votes which could be decisive. We will get the latest on all of this from our friend Steve Kornacki in just a few moments. Now, if all of this makes you anxious, you should see how anxious this is making the heads of the Republican Party. Today, Politico obtained a letter that is reportedly being circulated by Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and Senator Mike Lee of Utah and Senator Rick Scott of Florida. And Scott is key here because he's the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. This group of senators is circulating a letter pushing to delay elections for Republican leadership positions. Quote, we're we're all disappointed that a red wave failed to materialize. We need to have serious discussions within our conference as to why and what we can do to improve our chances in 2024. That's right. Senate Republicans are so upset that they might still be in the minority next year that they might try to dethrone Mitch McConnell. Those internal leadership elections are currently set to happen on Wednesday morning. And for context, since 2007, Mitch McConnell has always won those elections with the full support of his Republican conference. Now, Senators Johnson, Lee and Scott, plus Senators Marco Rubio, Cynthia Loomis, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, they are all calling for that leadership election to be delayed. Senator Hawley even says he'll vote against McConnell as the leader. And Missouri's new senator-elect, Eric Schmidt, has said that Senate GOP needs new leadership. And then tonight, moments ago, Republican Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters had this to say. You know what else is incompetent, Tucker? The establishment, right? The people who control the purse strings. Senate Leadership Fund, Mitch McConnell. McConnell decided to spend millions of dollars attacking a fellow Republican in Alaska instead of helping me defeat Senator Mark Kelly. Had he chosen to spend money in Arizona, this race would be over. We'd be celebrating a Senate majority right now. And so my message to the people uh, of America, my message to actually the Republican senators, hopefully my future colleagues, 
Let's not vote Mitch McConnell into leadership. He doesn't deserve to be majority leader or minority leader. You get a choice. You can stand with your constituents and stand with Americans, or you can stand for Mitch McConnell. So there's that. Republican leadership is so upset about all this that they may end Mitch McConnell's 15-year reign over the Senate. And then there's this. On a conference call with Republican Senate leadership yesterday, Senator Lindsey Graham went so far as to suggest fraud in Nevada if Republican Adam Laxalt does not win in the Senate race there. Quote, there is no mathematical way Laxalt loses, Graham said. If he does, then it's a lie. Sitting senator planting seeds of distrust in our election system, but only if the guy from his party loses. We see what you're doing there, Senator Graham. Like I said, as anxious as you may be, it looks like Republican leadership is even more so. Joining us now is the great Steve Kornacki at the Great Big Board. Steve, I understand we just got some new vote in from Pima County in Arizona. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, Pima County, Tucson area, second biggest county in the state. So we got another batch of 24,000 votes reported out there. Mark Kelly basically wins that batch of votes by a two to one margin. And so that extends his lead statewide. You can see it right here over Blake Masters. Nearly 120,000 votes here, nearly six points as well, six percentage points. And so I think that really raises the stakes for what we're expecting a little bit less than an hour from now, sometime around 10 p.m. Eastern, sometime in the 10 p.m. Eastern hour. Maricopa County, the biggie, is expected to release 80,000 more votes. 80,000 votes is the expected size of the release. But what is more significant about what's coming in Maricopa County tonight is that finally, for the first time, this very specific type of ballot, this type of vote that we've been talking about, if you've been following the last few days, we're finally going to get a look at. And that is the votes that were dropped off in person on Election Day at polling places, because there's been a question here. We, we've been seeing Mark Kelly run up the lead here in the previous Maricopa updates, because what they've been tabulating so far has been the remaining early vote ballots that arrived Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Now we're talking about something different Phys- ballots that were physically brought to the polls by voters on Election Day. Republicans believe this is a very Republican friendly set of votes unlike the early votes that have helped Kelly extend this lead. What Blake Masters is going to need and what Republicans are banking on is that it's an extremely friendly batch of votes. In Maricopa County, there's a total of 290,000 of them. We're not going to get all 290,000 tonight, but a big chunk of this 80,000 we're going to get tonight are going to be those same-day drop-off ballots. And we are going to get a real sense, I think, of whether that is an extremely Republican-friendly batch of votes or if it's something else. If it's extremely friendly to the Republicans, then Masters could have a chance of catching Kelly. If it's anything else, then Kelly may have built a lead here that Masters just cannot uh, 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 cannot surmount. So I think that's a critical update that's coming again. We expect that in the 10 p.m. Eastern hour here. And by the way, keep in mind as well, it's critical to the governor's race because in the governor's race in Arizona, Katie Hobbs has a lead, but her lead is much smaller than Mark Kelly's. And if there is a strong Republican bent or even a, a pronounced Republican uh, tilt to those late ballots, it may not be enough for Blake Masters in the Senate race, but it could certainly be enough for Carrie Lake in the governor's race. So this update at Maricopa in an hour, I think the stage is set for a very uh, uh, 
revealing uh, uh, update there. Meanwhile, in Nevada, in the governor's race, you mentioned it. We just called it for Republican Joe Lombardo. But here in the Senate race in Nevada, now Adam Laxalt's lead has extended about uh, at the top of the hour. It was just under a thousand. Now it's just under two thousand. Laxalt still has there are still some scattered reports coming in from the red rural areas of Nevada. So just get one of those. And Laxalt is able to extend the lead a little bit more. But what had happened before that was that we got about 26,000 votes reported out of Clark County. Clark County here, 70 percent of the votes in the state come out of Clark County. They broke heavily, almost two to one for Catherine Cortez Masto. And there are still 24,000 votes remaining there in Clark County. Additionally, and we expect probably tomorrow's the next time we're going to see more from Clark. But Meanwhile, tonight, we're also expecting 20,000 from the other population center in the state, and that's Washoe County. That's where Reno is. We're expecting around 11 p.m. Eastern time to get about 20,000 new votes here. And again, last night around that time, we got an update from Washoe County, and Cortez Masto was winning you know, by nearly 30 points, that update. So it's a chance here with this update at 11 o'clock. For Cortez Masto, if it breaks for her decisively, as it has been breaking for her decisively in these updates from Washoe, she could vault past Adam Laxalt and into the lead. And at that point, what would be left? Well, as we say, there'd still be 24,000 votes from Clark County, and we just got a sense earlier tonight how those votes are breaking. They seem to be breaking not just a little bit, but dramatically in favor of Catherine Cortez Masto. There would also be about 5,700 provisional ballots, which we expect to break Democratic. And there are also ballots that they're going through in Clark County that they're going through what they call the curing process for. These were ballots that were sent in. There's signature verification issues. Voters need to reach out, verify their identity, and then the ballot can be counted. So there are a couple of other types of vote in Clark County. But the bottom line is every update we're getting from Clark County is only building, is only helping Cortez Masto and that extended into tonight. So we could be in a position come 11 o'clock tonight where you get an update from Washoe County and Catherine Cortez Masto opens up a lead on Adam Laxalt for the first time. And then you're just staring at the vast, vast majority of remaining votes being in Clark County, where that trend is clearly established. Yes, there still are some to come in these rural pockets of the state. And you see that when they do come in, Laxalt can pick up a little bit, but they pale in scale compared to what's left out of Clark County. So the bottom line here is we'll see the Maricopa County update here. uh, And and you just got a little another one of those rural updates in Arizona, too. Same thing can happen there. A rural area can report out some votes and Blake Masters will make up a little ground. You see Kelly's lead is down to 115. But the bottom line is we'll get a big and I think telling Maricopa County update probably a little bit less than an hour from now. If Mark Kelly does win Arizona and if Catherine Cortez Masto does catch Adam Laxalt and does win Nevada, then Democrats will win control of the Senate. And that won't even involve the Georgia runoff. The Georgia runoff would just be to see if they could get a 51st seat. But that would give them 50 Plus, Kamala Harris says the tiebreaker if they get Nevada and if they get Arizona. Two very critical updates happening this evening around 10-ish and 11-ish, we think. Could come earlier, could come later. But you're looking at a moment when you could call the two remaining non-runoff Senate elections and know which party is going to control the upper chamber. Steve Kornacki, my friend, stick around. We will check back in with you later this hour. Thank you, as always. 
I want to bring in now uh, Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat of Colorado, who was just reelected to a new six year term. Senator, congratulations. Thank you for spending your uh, first Friday as, a, you know, a newly reelected incumbent with us on this show. I would love to get a sense of what you think the lessons are that are being learned by your Republican counterparts in the upper chamber. It sounds like <laughs> the very men <clears throat> who have sort of saw this coming, which is to say Mitch McConnell, who did not apparently very much like the the Trump candidates who were on the ballot, that they're the ones who are at risk of being ousted in this moment. So my question is, are Republicans learning the right lesson here? Well, I, I think, Alex, the lesson that I have learned is that the people of Colorado and the American people want to turn the page on Donald Trump's chaos. You know, there's there's a, a, a worry in the country and in my state that that is something we're just going to have to live with for the rest of our lives. And now we've seen the American people say, no, you know, we like a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress that can deliver bipartisan results working with Republicans and results for the American people when we need to work on our own, as we did with health care and with climate. So that, I think, is the fundamental lesson, the sort of back and forth about the leadership in both the House and the Senate. It's going to be really interesting to see over the next few days how much uh, how how much that continues and how big an influence Donald Trump is going to have in the outcome of those races. So you see this really as a referendum on Trump and Trumpism. And I guess with that, it doesn't <laughs> concurrently, it doesn't seem like Republicans are are necessarily understanding that in terms of how they choose their leadership. Right. Well, I mean, we're talking about. I, I, go, yeah. ahead. go ahead. No, you're right. No, you're right. I think it's a referendum. I think it was a referendum on three things. One, Trump and chaos. Two, 40 years of an economy in this country that started when Ronald Reagan, you know, put in his trickle down economics that has now created a situation where we have the worst income inequality that we've had in a century. We're the richest country in the world and we have the third highest childhood poverty rate, which is why I fought so hard to, for the ch child tax credit. That's just the beginning of what we should do and a referendum on the first fundamental constitutional freedom being stripped from the American people since uh, since Reconstruction. Those are the three things that work here. And the national Republicans have absolutely nothing to say about any one of those things. Well, I want to know what the national Democrats are going to do about it, at least one of those things, because President Biden, before these midterms, say said, if you give me the majority in the Senate and not a 60 seat majority, but you give me a simple majority in the Senate, we're going to get rid of the filibuster and we're going to codify Roe. Is that what is if, if Cortez Masto and Kelly win their races and I guess also Raphael Warnock is in the mix, although that would be icing effectively. Is that what's going to happen? Are Democrats going to get rid of the filibuster so they can codify a woman's right to choose? Well, I think we should get rid of the filibuster anyway, because I don't think there's any way we're going to compete with Beijing with a Senate where senators that represent 22 percent of the American people can have a veto on everything. But I absolutely believe uh, one of the reasons we should do that is to codify Roe versus Wade, a woman's right to choose at the national level. This is a fundamental civil right, and I certainly would vote to do that. And I and I think you know, we could get 50 plus one of our colleagues to do it. You think that we are I know John Fetterman, for example. Sorry, go ahead. But John Fetterman said over and over again during his election in Pennsylvania, which I congratulate him for, that he would vote to change the rules. And I 
I know how Reverend Warnock feels about that, too. I, I'm, I'm sure the enthusiasm for getting rid of the filibuster increases the more the Democrats maintain majority rule. But given how closely divided, I mean, even if they if you Democrats win these three outstanding Senate races, it's still a pretty slight majority. Does it worry you at all that the Senate control sort of is on a razor's edge from election to election when you're talking about getting rid of something like the filibuster? Well, it, it worries me, but all we can do is the best we can do and try to win as many seats as we can. I mean, these 50 uh, senators or 51 senators, which is what I think we'll have by the time we're done, you know, this is going to be incredibly important to to the to the what the judiciary looks like in in our country, for example. And it is it's really amazing that we're on this we're this close to being able to declare victory in, the, in I don't want to do it prematurely, but it's one of the reasons I'm staying up late tonight, because I think tonight might be the night we're going to be able to do that. And it's going to be really important to the th this two years of this Biden presidency for uh, for us to have a Senate majority, especially if we lose the House by two votes, which I'm not sure we will, but it, it sounds like that might be what happens. It's really an extraordinary moment, isn't it, to be sitting here, uh, you know, a few days after Monday, which where the landscape looked entirely different for Democrats. And now you may, in fact, be on the precipice of once again having majority rule in the upper chamber. This was going to be a tidal wave, Alex, and, you know, of red ink all across the country. And I keep saying out in Colorado, I want to see our state blinking blue before they've decided the races on the East Coast. And because of the way we vote here, we actually were able to do that. But it was an amazing night in Colorado. I mean, the governor won by double digits. I won by double digits. We won races up and down the ballot. Yadira Caraveo is going to be the first Latina congressperson from Colorado. And the story just goes on and on and on. It wasn't just a, a matter of survival. You know, you look at the counties that we won or did better in, uh, red red counties like El Paso County, Douglas County, and Colorado, where our margins in, improved by double digits over where they were, you know, where they've ever been. And I think it's because of the economic message that Governor Polis and I ran on out here, which says that, you know, we're we're tired of living in an economy where you know, all the benefit goes to the people at the very top. We've got to create an economy in this country that when it grows, it grows for everybody, not just the people at the very top. That is what Colorado wants. And that is what I think the Democratic Party has to help deliver. A matter of candidate quality and policy quality that the Democrats were delivering on. Senator yeah. Michael Bennett, Democrat of Colorado. Congratulations again, Senator, and thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Me too. We have much more to come here tonight. In just a minute, we're going to go live to Nevada to talk to Congresswoman Dina Titus. Republicans thought they could beat her this year, but she is going back to Congress. And if Senator Cortez Masto pulls it off and wins re-election, it will likely be thanks to the very hard work by Nevada's biggest union. We'll talk to one of their representatives just ahead. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We've just been talking about the Senate, but when it comes to the House, NBC is projecting that Republicans might take control of the lower chamber, but that projection is narrowing. Yesterday, we thought Republicans might wind up with 221 seats. Today, the projection is 220. That is a projection, of course, and it comes with a margin of error of plus or minus seven seats. But to be clear, Republicans thought they could flip considerably more seats than they've been able to so far, including the seat in Nevada's first congressional district, which includes Las Vegas and is normally a Democratic stronghold. It's the district of incumbent Dina Titus. And when the Democrat-led state legislature redrew that district to spread more Democratic votes across several districts, Democrats there were, shall we say, less than enthused. There may have been F-bombs. Republicans, meanwhile, were quite happy with it, and they believe they had a real shot to take Titus's seat, as well as the two others that were affected by the new plans. The Cook Political Report rated Titus's seat a toss-up. Outside spending poured in. But in the end, in this wholly unusual, insane midterm election, Republicans failed. Dina Titus's opponent, Mark Robertson, lost. In fact, Republicans have failed to flip any congressional, di- congressional district in the state of Nevada. And tonight, NBC has projected a winner for Nevada's third congressional district, Democratic incumbent Susie Lee. And that is not an insignificant loss for the GOP, the Conservative Congressional Leadership Fund. It's a super PAC. They spent more on that one House race than they did in any other congressional district in the country. So how did Nevada's vulnerable House Democrats survive this tight re-election race? And what does that portend for a potentially even tighter Senate race in the very same state? Joining us now is the newly re-elected Congresswoman, Dina Titus, Democrat of Nevada. Congressman, Congresswoman Titus, thank you for being here tonight. Congratulations on your win. I know you were not happy about the redistricting. <laughs> One of the F-bombs might have been yours, according to reports. What happened and how did it turn out uh, in Democrats' favor? How do you read the, the, the effects of Tuesday night? Well, the people in District 1 proved that they want a fighter and they know I am a fighter, maybe indicated by some of my language that should have been more discreet. (laughs) But uh, we just worked very hard. They poured $9 million into my race with outside money, but we just went after it. And we told the story of what Congress has accomplished the last two years. And we reminded people in Nevada that we were the hardest hit by COVID with the highest unemployment about 35%, and yet now we are the fastest recovering place in the country. And people understood that and appreciated it and knew we went after it and would do so again because we're not through with the problems. I wonder, I actually want to talk to you about the COVID effect on all of this because the Democratic Mm -hmm. candidate 
In terms of the governor's race, it seems like governors have been punished in a way. In a, or it, we talk about split ticket, but it looks like some Democrats at the gubernatorial level are having a harder time than uh, congressional Democrats. And I wonder if you think that's because of COVID and the fact that some of these governors had to oversee the closure of local businesses and take the hit to the state economy. Is that why you're seeing sort of different numbers in the same party for people in the gubernatorial races versus the congressional races? I think it's very likely. You cannot imagine how hard a decision it was for our governor to close down the strip when our economy is so dependent on that income, when so many people are employed in the tourism and uh, travel business. And to see the strip, you could drive down, it looked like the twilight zone, and close down for several months. So I'm sure that that has something to do with it. But if he hadn't done that, the recovery would have taken longer. It would have been harder. Lives would have been lost, and it would have taken uh, more of an effort to get people back into jobs and children back into school. Can you talk to me a little bit about the economic message? Because there was a lot of hue and cry about Democrats and how they were going to talk about the economy, how they were going to talk about inflation. You have a lot of working class folks in Nevada who, as you point out, took a hit when the casinos closed. How did Democrats talk to them about what was going on in terms of inequality, in terms of wages, in terms of growth? And what was the convincing message there? I think the message was, and this is one I ran very strongly on, is that we want to help the people who need the most, not those who have the most. And so that's why we went after big corporations. We went after executives of gas and pharmaceutical companies. We just made the point that when they get a tax break, that trickle down doesn't trickle down nearly as far as most of the working people in this district. Where did you see abortion in all of this? How animating was that for your voters? How animating was that in an is- as an issue in Nevada? There's a large immigrant population. How did that play out among your constituents? Well, we wondered how it would play in the Hispanic community, but Hispanic women were very strongly opposed to the doing away with Roe versus Wade. And Nevada is kind of a live and let live state, so they didn't like government telling them what they could do with their own bodies. And young people, especially young women, turned out in high numbers because suddenly they realized that something they took for granted might be gone and they wanted to fight for it, just as we did 50 years ago. Congresswoman Dina Titus of Nevada, thank you for your time tonight. Congratulations again on your win. May the F-bombs flow in a different direction next time. (laughs) Thank you. One of the biggest political machines in the state of Nevada is probably the Culinary Workers Union, also known as Culinary. In many ways, the Democrats' success is inextricably tied to the work of that union, both in terms of mobilization and now in terms of making sure each and every vote is counted. Joining us now is Ted Papa George, Secretary Treasurer of Nevada's Culinary Union. Ted, thanks so much for joining us tonight. I know Culinary has been super involved in the mobilization effort, but now it appears you guys are involved in a really critical post-election effort, and that is ballot curing. For people who don't understand what that is and why that is important, could you explain? Well, first of all, I'd like to say thanks for uh, having me here, Alex. And, um, you know, we saw the Congresswoman Titus just a minute ago, uh, another big victory. We had a clean sweep and a congressional delegation, and we're extremely proud of that. Um, The idea of ballot curing is that... uh, when somebody uh, mails in a ballot or drops off a ballot in an envelope, there could be they may have forgot to sign the the envelope. Uh, there's other requirements that could have happened. 
And uh, there's an opportunity. The election department uh, wants to make sure those folks know that even though they think they have voted, their ballot has not been counted. And our goal is to make sure that every single one of those ballots are counted. When you talk about curing the ballots, that is, in years past, been a, a Democrats have been very effective of curing those ballots. Are Republicans getting better at those efforts as well in these in recent months and years? Look, I can't really tell you that, but I know that, look, in 2020, we knocked on 650,000 doors um, in the middle of COVID when nobody else was on the door. Um, this time around, we knew these midterm elections were going to be extremely close. We had to expand our walk program uh, larger than we've ever done in the past. We uh, have knocked on o- over a million doors during a midterm in the state of Nevada. Those were our goals, and we hit our goals. Right now, um, we have uh, close to 300 full-time canvassers ballot curing in Las Vegas and Nevada. and. We are the largest ballot curing uh, program in the state, same as the canvassing. Nobody hits the doors like we do. Nobody hits the doors like culinary does. And like, I just want to say one thing. These are room cleaners. They're uh, food servers. They're cooks that work inside these big hotels. They decide to take a leave of absence from their jobs. They come out and agree to work in our uh, union canvas program. And they're doing it uh, as a mission. They are uh, out to protect their union, protect their families, protect their communities, and they get the job done. Um, We are extremely excited about the efforts and the victories that we've had in Nevada so far. So uh, we think that uh, Nevada is making the difference in this country and the culinary is the difference in Nevada. Yeah, I've spent some time at culinary headquarters and it is a formidable operation. Woe be to anybody going up against culinary. A lot of the question that we have at this point is who voted this in this election? What are we going to see with the remaining ballots? I'm asking a broad question, but I'd love as as specific of an answer as you could give me. But like, what did you see in terms of who was most motivated in this election? Could you give me a profile in terms of the voters that you were knocking on the doors of and what they were most animated and interested in? Well, we we have 60,000 members in Las Vegas that we represent. The majority of them are Latino workers uh, and and people of color. Uh, But when we knocked on the doors, um, the key really is workers talking to workers face to face at the doors. Um, And we saw that workers, you know, were concerned about the economy. That was the number one issue. You saw it on the 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 diagram you had up earlier. but, you know, abortion came up just as Congressman Titus said, uh, Nevada workers don't like people telling them what to do and uh, messing with their rights, the rights to vote or women's right with their bodies. Um, but at the end of the day, it was the economy. And and uh, for months now, uh, our message has been that we don't have to take it, that we can stand up to these Wall Street landlords, uh, these big oil companies. Um you know, that are uh, going after working class voters, going after our neighborhoods uh, and this this price gouging that's clearly going on and profiteering going on right now. We can take this on and we take it on right here, right now. So um, when we had those conversations at the doors, we saw the voters wanted to stand up and fight back. And and look, there's a lot of talk about working class voters and whether they were going to turn out. 
But what we say is that if you uh, if you want to uh, win working class voters, you've got to talk to working class voters, and then you got to fight and deliver for working class voters. And you know, Congressman Stephen Horsford, Congresswoman uh, Susie Lee, Congresswoman Dina Titus, and and uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who we think uh, by the end of this will be victorious, uh, were clear on the messaging uh, from the beginning that uh, we've got to have a strong working class economic message. And look, coming out of this election, we plan to press that issue. Um, you got to look at the, you know, the Fetterman victory in Pennsylvania and the, the great race that Tim Ryan won, uh, ran in uh, Ohio. And yeah. uh, we think that the Democrats may have left some time, uh, some victories on the table. It sounds like a fundamental argument about fairness. And so far in the state of Nevada, the Democrats have done very well with that. Ted Papa George, Secretary Treasurer of Nevada's Culinary Union. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. Okay, still ahead, as we wait for that all-important batch of votes to come in from Maricopa County, we will turn our eyes to the House, where Democrats still have a legitimate chance of holding on to power. It may be slim, but it's legitimate. The head of the House Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, joins us shortly. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Three days after the midterms and control of the House is still far from certain. At this hour, more than two dozen House races are still uncalled, but the NBC Decision Desk model currently projects that Republicans will gain 220 seats, plus or minus seven seats. But plus or minus seven seats is mathematically pretty darn interesting. And it begs the question, is there still a path for Democrats? And if so, how realistic is it? For answers to these burning questions, let's turn to the good, the great Steve Kornacki at the big board. Steve, what is the latest on the House? Yeah, we actually did just call a few more races NBC did in the last hour or so in the Democrats' favor. So basically, here's one way of looking at the math. Right now, there are 211 races that have been called for Republicans. There are 203 that have been called for Democrats or in California where they have those top two primaries and you can have the same party running in the general election. There are a couple districts where it's Democrat versus Democrat. So we're just going to say for the sake of this, those are Democratic seats. It's 211, 203 at this point. That leaves 21 uncalled races right now. So to get to 218, the magic number for Democrats is 15. If they can get 15 of the 21, they'll have a majority. The magic number for Republicans 
is seven. They need seven of the 21 uncalled seats, okay? So let's take a look at where those uncalled seats exactly are. And here's your list. There's 20 on this page, and then there's one more Washington 3 on this page. Let's go back to the biggie, and one thing that jumps out at you right away, 10, basically half of the uncalled seats are in California. And we had said this the other night, and if it ever came down to a district-by-district battle for House control, it could take a couple weeks because that's how long the voting, uh, the vote counting can take in California. Now, if you look at this list from the standpoint of Democrats trying to get that magic number of 15 of these 21, there are a number of them on here that are very promising for them already. Take, for instance, the 2nd District of Maine. Jared Golden, the Democrat, with a pretty sizable lead. Maine is a ranked-choice voting state, so if he's short of 50, he may need to go through a ranked choice process to actually get there, but he certainly and Democrats would be feeling good about his position there. New Mexico, too. Just about all the vote is in. It's very close, but the Democrats are ahead there. You can find plenty of seats like this here. You could see pretty realistically a path for Democrats to get to that number 215 that you just showed. How could they actually get, though, those three extra to get them to 218? Where should you be looking for those? Well, you should be looking to a district like this, the 22nd district. This is of California, the Central Valley, David Valadeo. He he lost his seat in 2018. He got it back in 2020. About a third of the vote is in right now. He is ahead of his Democratic challenger, but there's lots of vote to be counted still. And you do see in California often these late kind of wild swings as this weeks-long process sometimes of vote counting comes in. This is the kind of place, though, where the Democrat would have to leapfrog Valadeo if Democrats are going to go from getting 215 and just falling short to actually holding the majority. You'd need a district like this. Maybe you'd need something like this. Again, you'd need to come back here. Christy Smith over Mike Garcia. This is a rematch of a House race from two years ago. This was the closest, one of the closest House races in the country two years ago. Maybe in the 41st District of California, Ken Gatton. Calvert, the long-serving Republican, the district was changed, made it a little more Democratic in the redistricting process. These are the kinds of places the Democrats would need to pull off upsets, get a couple of those, win some of the others I was showing you, and they could get up then to 218 seats. The irony of all of this, Alex, is if they do end up falling just short, like let's say they got 215, that'd be three seats short. Where was the most damage done to Democrats on the map? In New York State. In New York State earlier this year, Democrats who have all the power drew congressional lines that were designed to maximize Democratic gains, minimize Republican opportunities. That map got thrown out by a court, redrawn, and on the new redrawn map, Republicans ousted and picked up four Democratic-held seats just out of New York, including that of the chairman of the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, the campaign committee that organizes the entire Democratic effort. An unbelievable irony if the DCCC has a historically incredible performance in this election. That's what this could amount to if they come just a few seats short. And yet what makes the difference, what costs them actually keeping the majority is the DCCC chairman himself losing his seat in his state, the blue state of New York, being the place where Democrats lost four seats. That could end up being the difference in this thing. I think that's what is in the encyclopedia under tragic irony. California, a nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Steve Kornacki, thank you as always, my friend. Got it. We are just a few minutes away from that new drop of votes from Arizona's Maricopa County. But up next, we will talk live with the head of the House Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. We'll be right back.
Three days after Election Day, we still do not know which party will control Congress next year. And while most of the focus has been on the titanic battle for the Senate, who will control the House also remains an open question in more ways than one. Here to talk about that with me now is Washington Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congresswoman, thank you for joining me on this. I want to say night of nights. It's the fourth night of nights um, as we await <laughs> eagerly more information about the balance of power. It, if the, I, I wonder what you think of this notion that's been floated, that if the GOP does end up holding on to control of the lower chamber and it's by a very slim majority, which very much looks like it could be the case, there's talk that Democrats could cut a deal with a moderate Republican to basically prevent someone like Kevin McCarthy from becoming Speaker of the House. Is that something that's been discussed in your caucus no, listen, Alex, uh, it's great to see you, first of all, as always. Um, I think what we are still focused on is the fact that uh, we still have a chance to hold the House and the fact that when people say, oh, these are wildly unexpected results, well, uh, yes and no, Alex. The, it turns out that when you promise a whole bunch of things that help make people's lives better and you actually deliver on them, people get excited and they turn out. So uh, and they vote for you and they want you to come back and do more for them. And so I think that, um, you know, what I'm struck by is how I, I don't know what the Republicans are going to do, um, but I can tell you that this is not going to be a cakewalk, even if they do get into the majority. It is not going to be a cakewalk for Kevin McCarthy to be speaker. They are going to fight with each other. They have a base of their party that has frankly, brought the Republican Party down to such a low level that um, we are, I, I th believe, we're going to have an extra seat in the Senate um, for Democrats. And I think that there's still a very narrow path, but still a path for, that, for us to hold in the House. I'm looking at states like Pennsylvania, where people delivered for working people. And the Republicans, in contrast, just want to you know, take down our democracy and want to take away Social Security, Medicare, abortion rights. And I think people are seeing that. When you talk about um, the majority, it's going to be a precarious hold no matter who has it, right? These are not going to be large margins that either party has in terms of control of the lower chamber. I think a lot of folks don't understand how volatile the numbers are in the House. We're talking about 435 people. A lot of things happen every year. I mean, unfortunately, during COVID, some people passed away. People take new jobs. People are called away from office. There are a lot of different dynamics at play. And when you're talking about a handful of seats that separate control of the, 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 the lower chamber, I wonder if Democrats are sort of thinking about possible eventualities, whether they're planning for a potentially volatile I won't say power struggle, but, you know, effort to keep the, the caucuses together. Well, that's always the case. I mean, you know, people always talked about the Senate being evenly divided um, in the last term. But as you may remember, there were times when we only had a three seat margin in the House because people did retire or they moved on to positions and there were open seats for a while. Um, and so we have had this situation of having three, four or five seat majority and all kinds of things happen in those situations. I think what's going to be important is if, 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 and it's a big if, Republicans take the House. I'm not conceding that yet, Alex, <laughs> but if they do, and it's a tiny margin, I think 
Democrats will be the last line of defense for working people, for poor people, for folks of color, for young people who turned out in massive numbers in this election, unbelievable turnout here, um, to make sure that we protect the wins that we had before and that we make, you know, that we protect future um, erosions of rights and freedoms and economic uh, benefits for working people across the country. That, there's always weird, um, you know, combinations of people that come together when you have these small margins. And I'm really excited about the fact that we also have, by the way, 15 of our 18 Progressive Caucus members that we endorsed at the CPC PAC have already won. We have two that are still outstanding, only one that has been declared a loss. So we also have some great new members and, and firsts coming in to the House that are really going to strengthen our entire caucus. I just got to ask you one more question as you look at the landscape of protecting those freedoms. It looks like members of the House Freedom Caucus are going to have ever more power with these slim majorities. Does that concern you, the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene may sit on a committee again? Well, it certainly concerns me for my for, for our country, um, for our democracy. And here's the thing. The Freedom Caucus has always been a caucus of no. People used to try and compare the Progressive Caucus and the Freedom Caucus. The Progressive Caucus is a caucus of yes. We know how to govern. We knew that there were slim margins. We worked with the president on his agenda to deliver real results. The Freedom Caucus essentially blows things up and um, is not a friend of working people. So uh, yes, it concerns me because it also concerns me about, um, you know, what what people across the country are going to have to experience in terms of the, the ultra mega extreme agenda and how yeah. they try to yeah. marginalize and target people across this country. All right. Buckle up in the short term. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, congratulations again. Thank you for your time. That does it for us tonight. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com